And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. Habemus Papa. You can't make the stuff up. Congratulations, dear listeners. You have made an excellent choice by tuning in to Trapcast, a podcast in which we contrast genuine traditional Catholicism with the frightful reality that is the Vatican II religion, currently presided over by the Argentinian apostate Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Pope Francis. With razor-sharp analysis and just a touch of humor, we keep you not only informed, but also entertained. Welcome then, ladies and gentlemen, to Trapcast 36. Let's go. Deja vu is defined as a feeling of having already experienced before What is happening now? I get that feeling when I look at the current ecclesiastical landscape, because it looks to me as though we're in a situation now very similar to how it was in the late 1950s and early 60s after the death of Pope Pius XII. There are quite a number of parallels to that, except that this time, of course, everything is taking place at a more advanced level that is, one step further removed from traditional Catholicism. Let me explain what I mean. In the last ten years, Francis has done so much damage to what the conservatives in the Vatican II Church would recognize as orthodox doctrine, you know, strict opposition to abortion, euthanasia, and sexual immorality, some emphasis on the supernatural, the life of grace, and eternal life as the goal of human existence, and so on. That, at least, was the perceived orthodoxy before Francis came along in 2013. With Francis's arrival and the utter chaos that followed and still endures to the present, At first, the conservatives tried to spin the new false pope as being just as orthodox as his predecessors. I remember distinctly Michael Voris, for example, slamming the secular media for daring to suggest that Bergoglio's obvious difference in style was reflective of a difference also in substance. Well, we all know how that went. Pope Francis talks like a pope like the successor to St. Peter. And so it seems to me now that, in a sense, Francis is, to his immediate predecessors, what John XXIII and Paul VI were to Popes Pius XII, Pius XI, and all the popes before them. For example, just as John XXIII called the council, taught false doctrine, caused a massive upheaval, and triggered a revolution that was then carried out by Paul VI, 
So, too, Francis has been calling synods left and right, especially now the upcoming Synod on Synodality. He has made a complete mess of things and has taught things contrary to the faith. And by that, I mean things that are contrary even to the doctrines of his immediate predecessors. Whether they actually are or aren't isn't even the point here. The point is that that is how people perceive it. And by that, I mean to include not just the average conservative Novus Ordo pew-sitter, but also big names such as Ralph Martin, Jeffrey Myrus, Joseph Seifert, Phil Lawler, Henry Sear, I think George Weigel even. To some extent or another, they see Francis as deviating from sound doctrine. And by sound doctrine, I mean what they recognize as such in the magisterium of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. With Bergoglio, everything has been up one level, you might say. Collegiality has become synodality, ecumenism has become human fraternity, and religious liberty has become divinely willed religious diversity. And so we have an interesting scenario here, because the same people who vigorously oppose traditionalists for daring to suggest that John XXIII and Paul VI and the post-conciliar magisterium deviated from the traditional Catholic magisterium of Pope Pius XII, now take a very similar line with regard to Francis vis-à-vis the prior Novus Ordo magisterium. And just as Paul VI all but outlawed the traditional Latin Mass, so Francis has now once again forbidden it, not entirely, but he's put severe restrictions on it and set a process in motion that will eventually phase it out altogether. Also, just as with Vatican II, there is once again this ominous atmosphere of a new beginning, a great reset, if you will. And of course, Bergoglio continually talks about the God of surprises and the newness of the Spirit, and denounces clinging to the past and all that, similar to how John Twenty-Third spoke of a new Pentecost, and denounced the prophets of doom, who, as it turns out, were actually right. The situation now is eerily similar to that of the 1960s, with the difference that some of the novelties of the 60s are today's orthodoxy, which the uber-modernists, like Francis, are trying to go beyond in order to bring about an ever greater apostasy. And just as we had strict defenders of the new orientation in the 1960s, so also today we have the various apologists for Bergoglio and his surpriseology. People such as Mike Lewis, Austin Ivory, Tim Staples, Michael Lofton, and Jimmy Aiken. And just as we had our Cardinal Ottavianis and Archbishop Lefebvre's back in the 1960s and after, so now we have the former U.S. Nuncio Archbishop Vigano, Bishop Strickland of Texas, and Bishop Schneider of Kazakhstan. And we even have the first post-Benedict Sedevacantus, so to speak, those who believe the chair of St. Peter has been vacant since either Benedict's death in 2022 or his resignation in 2013. And heck, for almost 10 years, we even had a Siri thesis of sorts, like those people who believe that Cardinal Joseph Siri of Genoa was the secret pope after Pius XII, 
A good number of people in the Novus Ordo Church think that Benedict XVI secretly remained the true Pope until his death on December 31, 2022. Among those, we can count Patrick Coffin, Alexis Bognolo, and Anne Barnhart. So, what does all of this mean? To be honest, I don't know. But I do know it is a creepy kind of deja vu. Ladies and gentlemen, as the apostasy and the doctrinal and moral chaos in the Vatican reach a fever pitch at ever greater speed, the reactions of the recognize and resist pundits are becoming more and more absurd. One of the latest examples, as of this recording, is a piece put out by Robert Morrison at The Remnant on July 18th, entitled Pius XII's Humani Generis and the Holy Ghost's Protection of what John XXIII rejected. Now, first of all, the idea that a true pope, which is, of course, what Morrison believes about John XXIII, the idea that a true pope could reject the magisterial teaching of his predecessor is already absurd. Humani Generis was Pope Pius XII's 1950 encyclical against neo-modernism, by the way. It is an absurd idea, but... Still, that position is to be expected from the remnant, so that's not really news. But here's the clincher. Morrison tries to explain how the Holy Ghost protected the Church when John XXIII rejected Pope Pius XII's encyclical. Listen to this utterly asinine commentary. Quote, for 60 years, so many Catholics have experienced tremendous anxiety over the thought that God's promise to protect the Church had become void with Vatican II. However, if we approach this deep mystery in a rational manner, trying to make the most sense out of the evident signs God has permitted in His loving providence, we can see that the Holy Ghost's protection of the Church was exercised by making it perfectly clear that John XXIII rejected that protection for his counsel. With the benefit of hindsight, we can recognize that from the first day of the council, there were already clear signs that John XXIII fundamentally rejected Pius XII's Humani Generis and the indispensable protections of the faith contained therein. It is as though God compelled John XXIII to leave us this unmistakable confirmation that he was rejecting the protections of the Holy Ghost. And I'm skipping ahead now. Although John XXIII obstructed the protections of the Holy Ghost with respect to his counsel, the Holy Ghost never ceased protecting the Church. In large part, that protection consisted of permitting it to be abundantly clear that the council did not benefit from the protections of the Holy Ghost. As such, no Catholic can follow any innovations of the Council that deviate from what the Church has always taught. Even more significantly, the Holy Ghost's protection of the Church has extended to allowing it to be painfully obvious that the Council's errors have caused disastrous fruits. This fact both adds a profound reason to avoid the errors denounced by Pius XII and his predecessors, and allows the true doctrine of the Church to shine forth more brilliantly. Unquote. Folks, I wish it were satire. 
In two paragraphs, Robert Morrison just claimed that the Holy Ghost protects the Catholic Church not by preventing an ecumenical council from teaching doctrinal error, but by allowing it to do so in an obvious way so that everyone can see the council isn't protected by the Holy Spirit. You can't make the stuff up. This is what the author calls approaching this deep mystery in a rational manner. This is just appalling. Do these people ever think about what they write? Or do they just throw stuff out there as long as it supports their position? I mean, come on. By that logic, I guess the Mormons are protected by the Holy Ghost. The Muslims, the Methodists, even the so-called Old Catholics after Vatican I, right? They could say that papal infallibility is such obvious nonsense that everyone can tell that the Holy Ghost was obviously not protecting the First Vatican Council in 1870. This is comedy hour. For the remnant to publish something so absurd shows that they're completely out of ideas. Their recognize and resist enterprise is intellectually bankrupt. They're out of answers, out of excuses, out of spin. They're done. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel, and it's even the wrong barrel. Francis has blown the lid off the false traditionalism of recognize and resist. And even though the resistors don't realize it now, or don't appreciate it, it's actually for their own good. But then, even as with the scribes and Pharisees back in the day, people still have to freely assent to the reality in front of them. It is not only a matter of the intellect, but also of the will. The editor of The Remnant, by the way, is Michael Matt, and I have a question for him that he himself recently asked of Novos Ordo apologists. I want to throw his own words back at him. What's it going to take to convince you guys? Yes, Mr. Matt, what will it take? That's what I want to know, too. None are so blind as those who refuse to see. That soundbite, by the way, was taken from the June 25th, 2023 video, Church in Flames, Traditional Catholics, Predator Priests, and the Latin Mass, published by The Remnant on YouTube. Putting the link in the show notes. You can find the show notes at tradcast.org. Simply scroll down to episode 36. Anyway, let's go back to Morrison's article. His thesis about the Holy Ghost protecting the church not by preventing evil from being taught, but by making it obvious that evil is being taught, he seems to contradict that later on in his article when he tries to explain why so many people, and even today, didn't seem to notice what was supposedly so obvious. He quotes Bishop Athanasius Schneider on this, and then comments, quote, if great shepherds of the church such as Bishop Schneider come to this realization only after considerable prayer and reflection, it is no wonder that so many faithful Catholics still labor under the mistaken belief that the Holy Ghost protected the council from error. Unquote. So, which is it? Did the Holy Ghost protect the church by making the council's errors obvious? Never mind that you'll never find such a ridiculous idea in any pre-Vatican II Catholic theology book. 
or are even great shepherds of the church and so many faithful Catholics incapable of seeing it for so long? Because if a large number of people cannot see the obvious for decades, then how is the church being protected? You can't have it both ways. You can't say the Holy Spirit made it obvious, but then also maintain that even many faithful, prayerful Catholics couldn't figure it out and still cannot, not to mention the not-so-prayerful ones. You know, I find it really infuriating that the remnant puts out such junk under the label of traditional Catholicism. I find it infuriating, especially because they reach so many people with this. How in the world did it ever happen that this is considered the orthodox antidote to the Vatican II religion? It's really tragic because this isn't a game. This isn't a joke. There are so many goodwilled, pious people who just want to be real Catholics and raise their families and please God, and this is the stuff that they get inundated with under the label of Catholic tradition. So Morrison refers to Athanasius Schneider as one of the great shepherds of the church. Well, of course he says that because he agrees with Schneider. He likes what Schneider says and does. So it's a rather subjective judgment. By the same token, though, others in his church may differ in their subjective judgments. They might, and many do, say that Cardinal Joseph Tobin or Bishop Robert McElroy are great shepherds because they agree with them. The difference would be, however, that Tobin and McElroy are actually shepherds in the Novus Ordo Church, and by that I mean they are actual diocesan bishops, local ordinaries, heads of dioceses, unlike Schneider. And here I'm totally sidestepping the issue of whether their ordinations are valid. That's irrelevant to the point I'm making. Schneider is only an auxiliary bishop, and that means he doesn't even have his own flock. So in that sense, he is not really a shepherd at all. His job is only to help the real shepherd of his diocese in various Episcopal functions. And that shepherd is Archbishop Tomasz Peta in the Archdiocese of Maria Santissima in Kazakhstan. He is the real Novus Ordo shepherd there, and only there. I just want to point that out because these recognize and resist people have created a fantasy world for themselves, a real bubble in which they live. And in that bubble, Schneider is a great shepherd because he presumes to correct Francis in public, and the Semitrats like that. But outside of that bubble, in actual Novus Ordo land, and what everybody else believes is the Catholic Church and how it's supposed to be, in, in that world, Schneider is not important at all. He's just an auxiliary in a diocese of only 54,000 registered as Catholics, with no external jurisdiction over anyone. And I'm not trying to put him down, I'm just relating the objective facts contrary to Morrison's wishful thinking. And I think that's important. People need to know when they read these Recognize and Resist articles how much of it is just spin. All right, we'll come back to the remnant later on, but now let's take a look at some recent news from Novos Ordo land. 
The Archdiocese of Munich in Germany is advertising an ecumenical requiem service for a glacier. Yes, a glacier. That's the ice that sits on top of a mountain. The notice on the Archdiocesan website announced it as follows, and by the time you're listening to this, it's already taken place. Quote, In order to draw attention to the consequences of rapidly advancing climate change and the importance of preserving creation, the Catholic and Protestant churches in Werdenfelser land are organizing an ecumenical requiem for the Zugspitz Glacier in the chapel of the Visitation of the Virgin Mary, Zugspitzplatt, on Tuesday, 25th of July at 12 noon. Unquote. (laughs) What do you say to that? Afterwards, the dwindling glacier will be blessed in a church ritual. Well, that's nice. Look, since their idea of church is not for the salvation of souls, they've got to have some kind of substitute, right? Otherwise, these pseudo-clerics will just be out of a job. You know, the funny thing is that typically all these people believe in evolution, right? In macroevolution, they believe that basically every living creature that exists evolved out of a single organism, a primordial soup of bacteria or, or something, or maybe even inanimate matter. And yet, these same people are worried about disappearing species and whatnot. Well, if everything can simply evolve from practically nothing, then what's the problem? Oh, and by the way, whatever happened to survival of the fittest? Maybe the glacier just didn't make the cut. Now look, I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the environment, that we shouldn't try to preserve biodiversity. It is God's creation, and some of it can be irretrievably lost. I'm just pointing out the irony here. If you believe in evolution, which is an absurd position, then this stuff shouldn't matter to you then everything comes from nothing. You just have to give it enough time. All right, let's go to the Vatican for some news. No doubt everyone has heard by now that Francis has appointed Victor Manuel Fernandez. We call him Smoochie because in 1995 he published that disgusting book, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing that he has been appointed now head of what used to be the Holy Office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now it's actually called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, but it really should be called the Dicastery for the Destruction of the Faith, because that's all it's for anymore. Now, a lot has already been written about Fernandez and how good of a fit he is for that dicastery, so I don't want to spend much time on him here. By the way, even the secular press has started reporting that given his background, maybe he's not the most suitable candidate for that position of, you know, chief guardian of orthodoxy. I'm going to link a few posts in the show notes for this episode and leave it at that, but I do want to mention that Fernandez has responded to his critics about that book and has said that, hey, don't make such a big deal about it. That was 30 years ago. It was not meant as a great work of theology. It was just meant as a catechesis for teenagers. Yeah, he said that. 
Apparently, he thought that that would help the situation. It didn't. It just showed how tone-deaf the man is. The book, by the way, has one chapter that contains a collection of short poems about kissing. I won't quote this now, but in one of the poems, written by Fernandez himself, he asks to bleed to death from the kiss of a she-wolf. Enough said. On May 19th of this year, Vatican News reported, Man arrested after forcing entry into Vatican City. A 40-year-old man drives a car at high speed into Vatican City State and is arrested after forcing two checkpoints of the Swiss Guard and the Vatican Gendarmerie. Yeah, that was a quote. And you can read the full story for yourself. The link's in the show notes. But what I find so interesting about the story is what we see there. We see that Vatican City, A, has closed borders, B, requires people who want to enter to use the official point of entry, C, does not allow just anyone to enter but requires a legitimate permit, D, defends its territorial integrity with armed guards who are willing to fire shots if necessary, and E, arrests those who violate its borders. Meanwhile, Francis preaches open borders and generous hospitality to everyone else. Another report from Vatican News is dated July 14, 2023. The headline is, Holy See Firmly Condemns Desecration of Religious Symbols. In the article, it says, quote, The Holy See has strongly condemned the desecration, destruction, or disrespect for religious objects, symbols, and places of worship, reiterating that these acts are an abuse of the precious gift of freedom of expression, which feed hatred, intolerance, and create greater polarization in society. Unquote. The Vatican News article says further, Quote, Monsignor David Putzer said that to willfully insult religious beliefs, traditions, or sacred objects constitutes an attack on the human dignity of the believer. Unquote. You know, I find that interesting, because when Paul VI did it, they called it liturgical renewal. Right? I mean, when the liturgical revolution got underway in the late 1960s, and the new mass was imposed, it led to untold sacrileges, desecrations of altars, communion rails ripped out, churches gutted, statuary thrown away, and so on. But that's how it's been for decades now. The unholy see is always concerned about desecration when it comes to the religious symbols and paraphernalia of other religions, not so much about Catholic things. Now, notice that the Vatican does not condemn the desecration, destruction, or disrespect of what is truly sacred because it concerns the true God or the true religion, but instead condemns what is merely considered sacred in any and all religions, thereby once again treating all religions as equal, putting the true religion revealed by Jesus Christ on the same level as man-made diabolical sects. 
concerning Article 9 of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the Communion of Saints, the Catechism of the Council of Trent points out, quote, Just as this one church cannot err in faith or morals since it is guided by the Holy Ghost, so, on the contrary, all other societies arrogating to themselves the name of church must necessarily, because guided by the spirit of the devil, be sunk in the most pernicious errors, both doctrinal and moral, unquote. Yeah, that doesn't sound exactly like Vatican II, does it? For those who may not be aware or have perhaps forgotten, the Vatican II decree on ecumenism, Unitatis Redintegratio, states the following in number three. Quote, it follows that the separated churches and communities as such, though we believe them to be deficient in some respects, have been by no means deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation, for the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the church." Unquote. That is insane. But anyway, going back to the Vatican condemnation of desecrating any and all religious objects, the immediate context in which uh, that came was an incident where someone in Sweden burned a Koran, the Muslim holy book, right next to a mosque. Now look, depending on the context in which it is done, burning a bad book, any bad book, may be prudent or imprudent. It can lead to misunderstanding. It can needlessly provoke anger, hatred, and violence. It can lead to the injury or deaths even of third parties. Burning a copy of the Quran in front of a mosque is probably not going to help in the conversion of Muslims to the true religion, Roman Catholicism. If anything, it will probably make such conversion a lot more difficult and needlessly so. At the same time, the fundamental fact remains that it is in itself and objectively a good and noble thing to destroy blasphemous books or other bad literature, dangerous literature, right, indecent magazines and, and so forth. Now, of course, in the Vatican II religion, they have long stopped distinguishing the true religion from false religions, and they have totally abandoned the idea that only truth has rights and error doesn't. That's that evil triumphalism they always decry. Instead, they now base everything on the alleged dignity of the human person to such an extent that in the event of a conflict, even the truth and the rights of God must yield to the dignity of man. And here we see a perfect example of that. Never mind that God is blasphemed in the Muslim Quran and the Jewish Talmud. Never mind that Hindus worship creatures and Jehovah's Witnesses deny the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. None of that, according to the post-Catholic Vatican, can make it lawful to destroy or denigrate, even in the proper context, their blasphemous texts, their false idols, their evil doctrines, symbols, and rites, because the people who unfortunately adhere to these diabolical religions have dignity, and that dignity is apparently greater 
than God's dignity, God's right not to be offended, not to be blasphemed, not to be lied about, not to be denied. That is insane. And here we see a fundamental paradigm shift between the preconciliar and the postconciliar church. And these two paradigms are inherently incompatible. In real Catholicism, false religions can be tolerated, and even the public exercise of false religions, depending on circumstances, may have to be tolerated and not outlawed or acted against. But never ever can there be a right to practice them or a right not to be prevented from practicing them in public. So the Novus Ordo Vatican considers it an attack on the human dignity of the believer to willfully insult religious beliefs, traditions, or sacred objects, again, without distinguishing the true religion from false religions. It's all the same, according to them, because people have rights even when they're in error, and if the error offends God, well, it's just too bad for the Holy Trinity. Well, according to that standard, the Vatican II Church would have condemned not only St. Boniface Winfred, who destroyed idols and heathen temples and cut down the so-called sacred oak the pagan Germans were worshipping in the 8th century, but also Moses, who destroyed the golden calf the Israelites had begun worshipping. In Exodus 32.20, it says, and laying hold of the calf which they had made, he burnt it and beat it to powder. As long as the idolatrous Israelites were human, and they were, then according to the false teaching of today's Vatican, they possessed that dignity which Moses had an obligation to respect, and which Moses had no right to offend against by destroying the idol. In fact, if this false new Novus Ordo doctrine were correct, then even our blessed Lord Jesus Christ would be to blame because he certainly did willfully insult some of the religious beliefs and traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm not going to quote it all here. I'll just refer you to Matthew 15, Matthew 23, Mark 7, and John 8. Folks, you can't have it both ways. If the new religion of Vatican II is true, then the entire church before Vatican II, the gospel and the New Testament itself, even the Old Testament, would be false. Then no one would ever have been allowed to destroy a statue of Moloch, Baal, or any other demonic idol because of the dignity of those devil worshippers. Folks, if this is not the great apostasy, I don't know what there will be left to apostatize from. Tradcast. All right, I've got yet another news story from the post-Catholic Vatican, and this one you may have already heard about. On May 19th, 2023, LifeSite published an article entitled, Vatican Mariologist Suggests Apparitions About God's Punishment Are False Despite Past Approval. You can't make this stuff up. So, this Franciscan friar, a certain uh, Father Stefano Chekin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, 
who is the president of the Pontifical International Marian Academy, has made the following brilliant comment about discerning true Marian apparitions from false ones. Quote, Does a mother want to punish her children by sending them illnesses? Death? No way. So the apparitions that speak of punishments from God are absolutely false. Unquote. But of course, to be true, all apparitions obviously have to jibe with Vatican II, with the joy and hope, the Gaudium et space of the new religion. And there is no room for punishment there. Punish people? Why would God do that? Right? Those poor Ninevites, they didn't know about Vatican II. <laughs> Those idiots actually did penance for 40 days because Jonas the prophet had announced to them that God was going to destroy their city. Didn't they know he was just bluffing? God would never have done that. They could have just sat back and waited for some divine caresses and accompaniment instead. Because, hey, would a loving God ever punish someone? I mean, what father punishes his kids, right? That doesn't ever happen. <whistles> Ladies and gentlemen, we see here once more the poison of naturalism. See, this Franciscan fellow is so steeped in the temporal and the mundane that he sees happiness as something that must come from and therefore be sought in this natural temporal world. Suffering in this world for eternal happiness in the next? That's not even on his radar. He can't fathom it, because he's a naturalist, just like Francis. That, by the way, is why Francis rejects not only the death penalty, but also life imprisonment as appropriate forms of punishment, because both mean the definitive end of happiness in this world. Now, what does a man like that, a novus ordo priest for heaven's sake, what does a man like that believe about sacred scripture? The Bible is full of God's physical punishments, beginning with the third chapter of the very first book. And then there's also Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and on and on. But of course, you know, these people don't believe in any of that. That's obvious. What could such a man as this Franciscan presbyter, who thinks God would never punish anyone, what could he possibly believe about purgatory, about hell, about picking up one's cross to follow Christ? These people are apostates. There is no Catholicism left in the Vatican. It's all just an empty shell. And remember that as Pope Benedict XV wrote in his encyclical Ad Beatissimi, the faith can only be accepted in its entirety. Quote, Such is the nature of Catholicism that it does not admit of more or less, but must be held as a whole or as a whole rejected. Unquote. It's paragraph number 24. So, if even just one dogma is rejected, the entire faith is thereby rejected because the faith exists only as a whole. 
Christ gave to his apostles, to his church, one deposit of faith. It is not made up of individual parts or elements. Okay? We can only accept that deposit if we accept all of it. We cannot pick and choose. If someone chooses only certain truths in that deposit and rejects others, then he does not accept the deposit at all and makes himself the authority of what is true and false rather than submitting to the authority of Christ and of his church. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? I think it's time for a break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Trackcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Trackcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org, NovusOrtoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a trapcast. I want to give a quick shout-out to all Nicodemus listeners out there. You know who you are. I'm talking about people who listen to Tratcasts secretly, hoping no one will ever find out. Welcome back. This is episode 36 of your favorite podcast. And now we come to one of my favorite segments. You've probably missed it already. From the Jorge's mouth. That's right, from the Jorge's mouth. Precious bits and pieces of the infinite wisdom that falls from the august lips of Jorge Bergoglio. Stage name, Pope Francis. And as always, he didn't disappoint. You may know that World Youth Day is just around the corner, and depending on when you're listening to this show, it may have already taken place. It's scheduled for August 1st through the 6th. And, of course, Francis released a video message for all those who will be attending. 
And uh, as always, it's just full of the profound spiritual insights we've come to know and love from the Argentinian Jesuit. So here we go. Vatican News released the following unofficial translation of Francis's words. Quote, Dear young people who are leaving for Lisbon for World Youth Day, I wish you a good journey. I hope you arrive at the encounter filled with joy. Take this path and make a journey. Life is about making a journey. Young people have the vocation to make a journey. Strive ahead courageously, always looking toward your destination. Do so with the mysticism of the journey, always walking with others and never alone. May God bless you and thank you for your efforts and your hard work. Have a good day. Unquote. I'm so touched. This is just so beautiful. Have more meaningful words ever been spoken? Who will not be edified by such supernatural insights? The mysticism of the journey moving forward with our eyes fixed on the goal. It's too bad he doesn't say what the goal was, but knowing him, he'd probably say the goal is the journey. Anyway, Francis has a lot planned still for the remainder of the year. After World Youth Day, he'll travel to Mongolia. Now, that country is not that small, size-wise, but they have so few Catholics there that they do not even have a diocese. If I counted correctly, they only have nine churches or chapels in the whole country plus a cathedral for the apostolic prefect, which is a missionary jurisdiction. The total number of people registered as Catholic in the nation of Mongolia is 1,300. And just so you have something to compare that to, the tiny island nation of Tonga in the Pacific Ocean has about 15,000. Okay, that's Tonga. So Mongolia doesn't even have 10% of the number of Catholics that Tonga has. And yet, Francis will fly there with his entourage and blow I don't know how many thousands of pounds of carbon dioxide into the air, all the while lecturing everyone else, of course, to fight climate change. That's exactly my kind of humor. All right, what else is Francis going to be doing this year? Well, he will have a consistory to create more fake cardinals on September 30th. And then, of course, there will finally be the grand event the world has been waiting for with bated breath. The Synod. That's right. The Synod on Synodality, which will be held in October in the Vatican, and then again in October of next year to finish it. You know, all this freak-outery over the Senate, I find it odd, because people who know better, or should know better, are acting as if this Senate will be some kind of unique event which will definitively determine if Francis is a true pope or not, or if Novus Ordo doctrine will be changed or not. 
Well, actually, the Synod will do neither. First, because Francis has already done so many things that are impossible for a true pope to do, that whatever he does at the Synod won't be the deciding factor for anything. And secondly, because the Synod does not determine doctrine. The Synod is not magisterial. It will, of course, issue a final document, but that document has no magisterial authority on its own and will only advise Francis as to what he should do. I guess they might say it's what the Spirit is saying to Francis. But at the end of the day, the one to change doctrine will be Francis. And he's done it before, entirely without a synod even. That was the change on the death penalty back in 2018. He just updated the catechism, and the footnote for that update simply referenced a speech he had given the prior year. Francis says it, and boom, doctrine changes. That's how that works. Now, for that one, for the death penalty, I guess he knew he could get away with it, because most people in the Novus Ordo disagree with the death penalty anyway, even some traditionalists, at least outside of the United States. So, that was not that big of a deal for him to change, I think. However, for something like access to the sacraments for unrepentant adulterers, Bergoglio needed a kind of mandate, so to speak, from the Senate. And that's why he didn't touch that topic until after the Synods on the Family back in 2014 and 15. So, if indeed he wants to go ahead and provide some kind of official magisterial opening to same-sex unions or blessings or whatever, and I think he does want that, he'll be looking for a hefty mandate from the Senate, because it's going to get a lot of opposition in this church, especially from people in Africa, I think. And so I suspect he will do what he did with the Senate's on the family, and that is try to get as much progressive junk into the final document as possible while looking to see how much conservative pushback there is. In other words, he'll just see what he can get away with. If there isn't much pushback, or just from very limited quarters, then he'll probably give a closing address at the Senate in which he praises the assembly as the voice of the people of God and therefore the voice of the Spirit, and, you know, signs of the times and that stuff. And then he'll incorporate the Synod's recommendations in his post-Synodal exhortation and thereby make them magisterial. And uh, all I can say is, for that final document, watch the footnotes. If, on the other hand, there is a lot of opposition and he doesn't think he can credibly get what he wants then he'll do what he did in 2015 and say at the Synod closing address that the church can't be reduced to political categories like progressive and conservative, and that really both sides are crazy, and he, the successor of Peter, has now come to step in and put an end to these insufferable skirmishes between progressives who want the church to be a flower without roots and the conservatives who want the church to be perpetually fixed on the roots, thereby stifling growth and suffocating the spirit. That's what I think is going to happen. One of these two alternatives, depending on how things go for him. Now, the Synod is scheduled to end, as I said, in late 2024, which means the magisterial papal document 
wouldn't be released until 2025. And frankly, I don't think Francis is going to make it to 25. He'd be 88 then, and I just don't see that happening. Anyway, time will tell. Okay, having covered all that, let's go back to The Remnant. On July 8, 2023, Michael Matt published a 40-minute video entitled Inside the Vatican, Pope Francis, Bill Clinton, and Alex Soros. In that video, Matt talks about some of Francis's latest chaos, and then he says stuff like this. They're making a chaotic mess of the church in her human element, as we always say. And it's on purpose. Church and her divine element, friends, is fine. Not worried about it. The church and her human element has been totally infiltrated. Ah, yes, the human element is back. And you know, with regard to Francis's personal moral failings, such as giving a thumbs up to a blasphemous artist or meeting with wicked people, yeah, that would pertain to his personal sinfulness and in that sense to the human element of the church. But the divine element concerns the church's nature, doctrine, sacraments, laws, saints. And Michael Matt is not worried about that? Really? No, that's not how it is. He simply says that that's all part of the human element as well. And as he said in a YouTube video years ago, the divine element was God, the angels, and the saints. Something to that effect. Fantastic theology and so traditional. Next, Matt contrasts Francis's new made-up doctrines with the teaching of the First Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution, Pastor Aeternus, chapter 4, where it says, quote, For the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that, by his assistance, they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles. Unquote. And then Matt makes one of the most crucial mistakes of the recognize and resist crowd. He interprets these words from the First Vatican Council in a normative sense rather than in a descriptive sense. What do I mean by that? If taken in a normative sense, it would mean that the Council's teaching merely establishes a norm for the Pope to follow, as in, the Pope is supposed to teach sound doctrine and not make up his own teachings. But Vatican I is not simply establishing a norm here, because that wouldn't make any sense. It would be totally insufficient. Any pastor in the Church is not supposed to teach a false gospel. Indeed, any person, anywhere, at any time. What makes the papacy so different, so unique, from any other institution in the world is that it is guided by the Holy Ghost, and this Holy Ghost will assist the Pope in such a way that he will not, indeed cannot, ever teach his own doctrines rather than the true gospel. And so, that passage from Vatican I only makes sense if taken in a descriptive way. The Council describes in what manner the Holy Ghost assists the papacy. It does not simply give the Pope a rule to follow. In other words, the Council does not say what the Pope ought to do. 
it says what the Pope does. Next, Michael Matt announces the Bellarmine moment. Ladies and gentlemen, our Bellarmine moment is here. We've gone we've over this before, but it's time to get serious. <laughs> Remember, St. Robert Bellarmine, doctor of the church, said, Therefore, just as it would be lawful to resist a pontiff invading a body, so is it lawful to resist him invading souls or disturbing a state, and much more if he should endeavor to destroy the church. I say it is lawful to resist him by not doing what he commands and by blocking him lest he should carry out his will, end quote. But the point is, we have doctors of the church who are talking about popes who can go so far off the rails that they actually began to try to attempt to destroy the church. Bellarmine doesn't say they cease to be popes. Matter of fact, he says, we can't even judge them if they do that, but we must resist them if they're trying to destroy the church. You know, some people can spend decades repeating their same old talking points without ever learning anything. That argument Matt just made using the resistance quote of St. Robert Bellarmine was refuted as far back as 2004 by Father Anthony Cicada. That was almost 20 years ago. Let me quote from that article, and of course it's linked in the show notes for Tradcast 36 at Tradcast.org. Quote, anyone who actually consults the original sources and who understands a few fundamental distinctions in canon law comes up with a completely different set of conclusions about what the famous resistance passage really means. To wit, one, Bellarmine is talking about a morally evil pope who gives morally evil commands, not one who, like the post-Vatican II popes, teaches doctrinal error or imposes evil laws. Two, the context of the statement is a debate over the errors of Gallicanism, not the case of a heretical pope. Three, Bellarmine is justifying resistance by kings and prelates, not by individual Catholics. Four, Bellarmine teaches in the next chapter of his work, chapter 30, that a heretical pope automatically loses his authority. Unquote. And, by the way, there is another Bellarmine quote that Michael Matt never cites, and it's this one. Quote, the Pope is the teacher and shepherd of the whole church. Thus, the whole church is so bound to hear and follow him that if he would err, the whole church would err. Now, our adversaries respond that the church ought to hear him so long as he teaches correctly, for God must be heard more than men. On the other hand, who will judge whether the Pope has taught rightly or not? For it is not for the sheep to judge whether the shepherd wanders off, not even and especially in those matters which are truly doubtful. Nor do Christian sheep have any greater judge or teacher to whom they might have recourse. As we showed above, from the whole church one can appeal to the Pope, yet from him no one is able to appeal, therefore necessarily the whole church will err if the Roman pontiff would err." Unquote. That's from the book On the Roman Pontiff by St. Robert Bellarmine, Book 4, Chapter 3. 
and I used the Ryan Grant translation, and that is also linked in the show notes. So yeah, I'd say it really is our Bellarmine moment. By the time the official magisterium of an apparent pope is a sewer of heresy and blasphemy, that is your divine clue that the man in white who's spouting this garbage is not in fact the Roman pontiff. If you try, by hook or by crook, to nevertheless make him be the Roman pontiff, you are necessarily utterly destroying the Catholic teaching on the papacy in the process, whether you mean to or not. Obviously, if the papacy has any meaning, then you cannot simply take an apostate teacher like Jorge Bergoglio and say he's the Roman pontiff with no impact to the correct understanding of the papacy. But somehow, Matt thinks that's above his pay grade. So no, I'm not a saint of a contest, and neither was Bellarmine. <laughs> I am perfectly content to let history and a future pope judge Francis and declare whether or not you know he retained his office during this period. That's for somebody else. It's above my pay grade. So that's above his pay grade. That which follows necessarily from Catholic doctrine applied to the observable facts of our day, that's above his pay grade. But constantly correcting, criticizing, rejecting the papal magisterium, and telling others to do the same, even to the point of saying the Pope is the head of a false church, that is not above his pay grade. I find that very interesting. This idea that we have to wait for a future pope to judge Francis before we can know if he was a pope or not is neither true nor helpful. Because a Catholic would have to know now whether following Francis is safe and necessary for salvation or not. And contrary to what Matt thinks, that does hinge on whether he's the pope. I understand what I'm talking about here. Well, I'm sorry, but it's not apparent. You don't care whether Francis is the Pope or not because you do not submit to him anyway. But submission to the Roman pontiff is necessary to be a Catholic. It is necessary for salvation. These things matter. You can't just yell them away. And this resistance to the Pope is between me and God, not you, not anybody in this audience who's going to lecture me about how you can't do that. That's not right. You must declare that he's not the Pope if you're going to resist him. No, no, that's not it. It's my conscience that matters. Excuse me, sir, but you've been spreading your position for decades. And this very video, at the time this Trotcast is being recorded, has 45,000 views on YouTube. You're impacting a lot of people. If you want this to be just between you and your conscience and God, then for heaven's sake, stop publishing. The remainder of the Michael Matt video is so theologically atrocious that I've just decided to let it go from here on, except for this one ironic soundbite. Don't let Francis, please don't let Francis. Think of all the great popes in history. All the beloved saints, Pius X, Pius V, Lepanto, the hero popes. We're not talking about warring against the papacy. We're not talking about throwing the popes away or discarding the theology of the papacy because of a guy like Francis. 
It's just one bad pope that went off the rails. Where do you start? Where do you start? So he wants you to think of all the sainted popes. Well, right away, my question would be, does that include John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, and John Paul the 2nd? Because those were canonized as saints by Francis. See? It, with recognize and resist, you cannot escape the problem. Michael Matt can yell all he wants. Changing the theology of the papacy is precisely what he's doing. And he's doing it for the sake of having Francis be a true pope. What a bad bargain. Oh, and then Francis is just one pope who went off the rails? As far as I recall, the remnant's resistance didn't start with Francis in 2013. The remnant was founded in 1967 precisely because they could not, in conscience, go along with the new orientation of Vatican II, which is why they split from the Wanderer then. Long before Francis, there was the resistance of the remnant against Vatican II, against Paul VI. John Paul II, and even against Benedict XVI, to an extent. So, I don't know if Michael Matt knows what he's arguing anymore. Oh well, another big recognize and resist icon as of late has been Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, and uh, we're going to need to give him some attention because he influences a lot of people and is cranking out really dangerous ideas, specifically on the papacy. Of course, Kwasniewski believes Bergoglio, Francis, is the Pope of the Catholic Church, but he keeps publishing article after article advising people on how to properly understand Catholicism, even against the magisterium of Francis, as if he were some kind of theological authority in his church, when he has no mandate from the lawful ecclesiastical authority to be doing that. And by that I mean that he does not have a mandate from anyone he himself claims is the lawful church authority. He's doing it completely on his own, and some of it is totally at odds with traditional Catholicism. That's significant because listen to what Pope Pius XII said in his address to the cardinals gathered for the canonization of St. Pius X on May 31, 1954. Quote, the bishops, and first of all, the supreme teacher and vicar of Christ on earth, may associate others with themselves in their work of teacher and use their advice. They delegate to them the faculty to teach, either by special grant or by conferring an office to which the faculty is attached. Those who are so called teach not in their own name, nor by reason of their theological knowledge, but by reason of the mandate which they have received from the lawful teaching authority. Their faculty always remains subject to that authority, nor is it ever exercised in its own right or independently. Unquote. In short, exit Peter Kwasniewski. You cannot say Francis is the Pope and then teach theology without his permission by the diocesan bishop, much less teach against him, as Kwasniewski is doing. As I keep saying, accepting Francis as Pope has consequences. 
Anyway, on Novus Ordo Watch and in Trapcast, we've critiqued Kwasniewski a lot in the past, so I'm not interested in repeating all that here. But I did want to make you aware of an article the professor published at 1 Peter 5 on June 21st, 2023. It's entitled, A Wanderer Asks Questions About Church Membership. The wanderer in question is a former Novus Ordo turned Coptic Orthodox. He's having some doubts and he's asking Dr. Kwasniewski to give him some reasons for why he should return to Catholicism by which he means ultimately recognize and resist traditionalism. Now, Kwasniewski has done this sort of thing before. In the show notes, I'm going to link an article from 2021 entitled Why Still Be a Catholic? A critique of Peter Kwasniewski's answer to a despondent Novus Ordo seminarian. That was an utter train wreck, okay, on Kwasniewski's part, what he said to that seminarian. I'm also going to link Tradcast Express number 133, which is a complement to the Novus Ordo Watch article. But let's now have a look at what Kwasniewski says to that wanderer. First, the professor says that there are two types of Catholicism in the Catholic Church, that of tradition and that of modernity, and that they are very often found mixed together in the same church this is a quote now, in the same church, in the same diocese, the same parish, the same priest or bishop or pope, unquote. And so he says that the task of the Catholic now is to somehow disentangle that mess and only stick to the Catholicism of tradition. Kwasniewski says, quote, we must exercise discretion or discernment as we walk to ensure that we are keeping to the right path, unquote. Of course, at that point, you'd have to ask how the Catholic Church, what he thinks is the Catholic Church, how that is any different from, say, the Anglican Church or some conservative Protestant denomination. For they, too, have certain beliefs that are true, and others that are false. And if I'm not mistaken, they believe that each believer has to figure out which is which, based, if not on tradition, at least on the Bible. How does that differ in essence from what Kwasniewski is proposing? Beats me. In any case, Kwasniewski then tries to find a way to get around a pope teaching heresy or other error, since he refuses to consider that Francis is not the pope. Couldn't have that and uh, brings up all kinds of superficial arguments, such as, oh, well, the Pope doesn't define what Catholicism is. In the past, you didn't get your doctrine from the Pope. It was already there, and you only looked to the Pope to settle doctrinal disputes, and blah, blah, instinct of faith, inner consistency, authentic traditional sources, and whatnot. The point is that none of these things can be used against the magisterium of the Pope. And the idea that there could be a contradiction between them, such that you must reject the teaching of the Pope in order to be faithful to the deposit of faith, that's impossible. That's injurious to the faith itself. That is why, that is one reason why you must conclude that Francis is not the Pope. See, this matters. Francis' status as true pope or false pope matters. 
It's not just a question of, do we have the authority to make a declaration? It has nothing to do with making an authoritative declaration. Anyway, Kwasniewski then says this, quote, Our faith is not based on priests, bishops, and popes, but on the eternal and inerrant word of God, the witness of tradition, and the authoritative teaching already in place, unquote. That is such an outrageous, Protestant-like argument. And it's not even very bright. By the authoritative teaching already in place? Well, what makes it authoritative? The fact that it comes from the papal magisterium? Or the fact that it's already in place? If the former, then he's conceding that the papal magisterium is authoritative of itself. If the latter... What does being already in place have to do with anything? How does that make it authoritative or true? You guys ever get tired of these stupid arguments? Papal authority is the same throughout, past, present, or future. Makes no difference. It's the same authority behind it, and that is ultimately the authority of Christ. In his encyclical Humani Generis, which we mentioned earlier, Paragraph 18, Pope Pius XII was referring to the papal magisterium when he wrote, quote, This sacred office of teacher in matters of faith and morals must be the proximate and universal criterion of truth for all theologians, since to it has been entrusted by Christ our Lord the whole deposit of faith, sacred scripture, and divine tradition to be preserved, guarded, and interpreted. Unquote. And Pope St. Pius X had likewise affirmed in his 1909 allocution Convera Satisfazione, quote, The first and greatest criterion of the faith, the ultimate and unassailable test of orthodoxy, is obedience to the teaching authority of the Church, which is ever-living and infallible, since she was established by Christ to be the columna et firmamentum veritatis, the pillar and support of truth. And that's a reference to 1 Timothy 3.15. Unquote. As I said, exit Kwasniewski. But we're not done yet, I'm afraid. Listen to what he says here. Quote, I do not think there is any absolutely decisive and unobjectionable proof and he puts proof in quotes, that one must be in union with the Catholic Church centered in Rome, such that it would be impossible to resist it with counter-arguments or contrary experiences that point in another direction. But, for the same reasons, neither is such a proof available for any church of the East. If anything, the arguments of the East for its autocephalous status are far weaker than the arguments for the papacy as a center of unity, unquote. Unbelievable. So Kwasniewski, supposedly an authority on traditional Catholicism, asserts that there is no conclusive proof that the Catholic Church is the true church and not the Orthodox Church. And he says that in what is supposed to be a defense of Catholicism against Eastern Orthodoxy. You've got to be kidding. Oh yeah, he says there is more reason to accept the Catholic Church, but ultimately, you can't prove it's the true Church. 
So I guess it's a matter of weighing probabilities. Or am I reading him wrong? It looks to me like he's denying that we can know that the Catholic religion is the true religion. And this man is being promoted left and right by the semi-trads as a great writer on traditional Catholicism. It's frightening. What Kwasniewski says next is also interesting. Quote, what we do have, in any case, are many converging signs that the Latin and Greek churches have preserved their sacramental liturgical dogmatic identities in spite of individual deviants who cause scandal, and that each has, with God's grace, preserved certain truths or features better than the other has done. Unquote. Did you get that? He just said that the false Orthodox churches have preserved certain truths or features better than the Roman Catholic Church, and that that is due to God's grace and vice versa. That sounds like something straight out of Vatican II. In fact, in footnote number three of his article, Kwasniewski writes, quote, The Church has always recognized apostolic succession and valid sacraments in the churches of the East, and this fundamental bond in divine realities brings those churches into some actual, albeit imperfect, relationship with the Catholic Church to which they once belonged in full. There is an objective woundedness to the empirical church on earth by the lack of the Eastern provinces. Unquote. That's Vatican II speak right there. Notice also the lack of clarity. He speaks of a fundamental bond in divine realities and of some actual, albeit imperfect, relationship with the church. Funny how he doesn't say communion. To which these false churches once belonged in full. Ah, so they now belong only in part. Well, there's your Vatican II ecclesiology of partial communion. That is the inescapable problem with recognize and resist. You never quite know just how much to resist. Once you deviate from what you recognize as the papal magisterium, what other standard are you going to go by? What will be your source to allow you either to correct or accept the papal magisterium? Will it be articles on 1 Peter 5? The remnant? The SSPX? Ah, I know, tradition, right? But wait a minute. Tradition tells you to use the papal magisterium as your standard. Checkmate. And with that, we'll wrap it up for today. This was Tradcast 36. Thank you very much for keeping me company here. Before you go, I have one small request. If you like this podcast, please tell others about it. And if you don't like it, please keep it to yourselves. Until next time, God bless you.